0: To the New Testament book of, or the Old Testament book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're going to start at chapter number nine. The book of Genesis in chapter number nine. We're currently in a series dealing with the lineage of Jesus Christ. And as we've been observing the lineage of Jesus Christ, we know that there are 64 generations between Adam to Jesus Christ and what we're doing is we're just going through walking through as we can we'll do individual character studies but like tonight there are going to be times that we do a grouping of the lineage of Christ and we come to a portion Of the Word of God that normally as we get to Genesis chapter number 10 we reach a passage where most people say all right my eyes have touched every word of the page I don't know what I read but I read something and we would like to try to make that clear tonight but before we tackle Genesis chapter number 10 we have to start in Genesis chapter number 9 the book of Genesis chapter number 9 and we need to see right after Noah gets off the ark him and his three sons, that God gives several commandments, a specific commandment specifically, that we have to address. So notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of Genesis chapter 9, and notice with me in verse number 1. Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. If you don't mind, jump down to verse number 18, Genesis chapter 9 starting at verse number 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And then notice with me in chapter 10 and verse number 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah Shem Ham and Japheth and unto them were the sons were sons born after the flood and then all the way through chapter 10 it gives a lineage a grouping of Of names that are come from these three sons and oftentimes we call this lineage found in Genesis chapter number 10 we often call this the table of nations because it is out of this lineage in Genesis chapter 10 that we have the different people groups that we found listed in all of the bible that are mentioned in seed form descendant form their very first ancestors the fathers of these people found in genesis chapter 10 and we often once again we call this the table Of nations if you don't mind let's go to the Lord together let's pray dear Heavenly Father thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God and again I know that this is a lot of information but I'm asking that we could organize our thoughts to have an understanding of world history that we could understand where these people came from we could understand the importance of this lineage But Lord, we could also learn more about you. And as we learn more about you, we could also learn more about mankind. And I'm asking that you would help us to understand and properly apply this for our own purposes. Lord, help us now. Fill me with your spirit. You get your work accomplished. And again, let it be clear and let it be understood. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now again as we mentioned Genesis chapter 10 gives uh, what we would call the table of nations and what it does is it gives a listing of the descendants of Noah's three sons. First of all we would have Japheth that is found in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 10. Japheth had seven sons and his descendants are going to settle in Europe, and in Asia. So Japheth is going to be the father of the people that settle in Europe and settle in Asia. If you have a European descent you are probably from the lineage of Japheth. Then after that we would have Ham that is listed in Genesis chapter 10 verses 6 through 20 and he has four sons. Ham has four sons and these grouping of people are going to settle in southwest Asia inside of Canaan and also Africa. So often we would call this the Middle East area. This is where this grouping of people is going to settle. And then at the end of uh, (coughs) the book of Genesis chapter number 10, we have the lineage of Shem. Shem has five sons and once again they settle in the immediate Middle East They also come up with the Shemites, which also come from the Hebrew people. Oftentimes you may hear about anti-Semitism. That's another way of saying against the family of Shem. And so what we have here is the lineage. Now this is survey form. Let's dive in a little bit deeper understanding Noah's five son, or three sons that are listed here. Japheth which settled in Europe and Asia. He had seven sons. Ham had four sons where in Southeast Asia, Canaan and Africa. And then Shem who was in the immediate Middle East area which also came the Hebrew people, the Shemites. If you don't mind, let's dive in and first of all see the sons of Japheth. The sons of Japheth. We start, if you don't mind, (laughs) Japheth is mentioned first because his lineage is the furthest away from Israel. Remember that Israel is often marked as the center of the biblical world. And so if you're going to start on Israel, the grouping of people that is the furthest away would be the family of Japheth. These people had less interactions with the Hebrew people, especially in the Old Testaments. You're not going to see a lot of interactions. So, because they're uh, more distant, they are <coughs> what God is doing is almost funneling in the attention. He's taking the worldwide view and then bringing it down to the center of the Old Testament affairs into the promised land area. Japheth is the progenitor of many nations. Many nations recognize him as father. These would be all the Indo-European peoples. <laughs> Japheth is also connected with Apetus, who is the who the Greeks consider the son of heaven and earth, and the father of many nations. So the Greeks have a have a mythology about this man of Apetus, and Apetus is supposed to be the the father of all of the peoples. This apathist is often considered Japheth. Now that makes sense. If there was a worldwide flood that you had Noah and his wife and his, Noah's three sons and their wives. And you would have Japheth who would go off into the European area. Wouldn't it make sense? There would be some mythological idea that all the people came from this one person by the name of Japheth. <coughs> now the first son of Japheth that is mentioned is Gomer. These descendants were associated with the uh, Chimerians who settled on the shores of the Caspian and the Black Sea. And later they had a great presence inside of Germany and Wales. They would be located around this Black Sea Caspian area if you are familiar with maps and geography. This is where they would have originally settled. Now, the next son that is mentioned is Magog. These people were often associated with the Scythians, who inhabited the area near the Caspian Sea. Again, these are the Magog people coming from Japheth. They would settle near the Caspian Sea. We would see this area here on the map. They would be on the north end of the Caspian Sea. This is where the people of Magog settled. By the way, the people of Magog you will see them mentioned in prophetic events over and over and over. These group of people are important to future events. Now, after Magog, the next son mentioned is Mattiai. Mattiai, these people later on were known in history as the Medes, and they were a very important part of what was going to become the Persian Empire later on. These people settled to the southwest of the Caspian Sea. So pretty much in what we would call the area of Midian later on known as the Persian Empire. The Midians were the forebears, the the immediate builders of that world empire. Now next would be Javan. He is known as the father of the Greeks. So we're talking about another son of Japheth. This is another son. This would be Javan. Javan is considered to be the father of the Greeks. Now, in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it says, And the sons of Javan, Elish, Tarshish, Kittim, and Donim. These were the isles of the Gentiles, or by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Every one after his tongue and after their family in their nations. Now notice this a phrase here, the Isles of the Gentiles. In your margin or in your notes you could put in your mind the Greek islands, the Greek descendants. This is what this idea of the Isles of the Gentiles are. This is going to be the Greek peoples. Now the name of Javan was used for the Ionians who dwelt in Western Asia Minor. We know Asia Minor as Turkey. These um, (laughs) descendants were the Ionians. Now the Ionians are important inside of history. If you like those type of things, they were one of their major cities was Troy, which you would know the Trojan Wars. You remember the Trojan Horse that set in. This is all taking place by these people that settled on Asia Minor of Turkey. Of their colonies, they were Greek type people. <coughs> Remember, all of these descendants came from this place of Greece and Turkey. Now, the first of Javin, uh, the sons of Javan was Eliash. This word in Hebrew is usually joined with the word used for island or coastline. So you would see Iliash joined with island or coastline to form more of a word describing. These people were associated with the Maritime Greeks, including the colonies on Italy and Sicily. So these are the, the sailors of the Greek isles. They would travel in the Mediterranean Sea. They became uh, the um, the traders. They uh, settled and put a lot of colonies. Again, they're associated with this area here, Sicily, Italy, and all the Mediterranean Sea. Now the next son mentioned was Tarshish. Now Tarshish is important because he became identified with the southwest coast of Spain. You might remember that later on in history that Jonah tried to book passage to Tarshish. This again is in the south part of what we would know as Spain. Tarshish is known to have settled in this area. Now Kittim is used to refer to the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is a huge island in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea right by uh, the coast of where Israel is at south of Turkey. That is known as Kittim. For a long period of time it was the island of Kittim later on known as Cyprus. Now many of the sons of Javan are depicted by Ezekiel in opposing the invasion of Israel by Russia in a coming day. So remember there's a lot of prophetic events. This is speaking about things in the future and that the group of people that are going to try to stop, oppose, not agree with Russia trying to evade Israel is going to be these descendants of, of Javan later on. Now, the name of Tubel and Mekish are always placed together inside of history. These are another one of those sons of Japheth, the grandsons. They are associated with the modern Russian people. And once again, you'll see them in prophecy quite a bit. The final son of Japheth is Tyrus. Tyrus are known as, in history, they're known as to be savage pirates. So in the ancient world they would have savage pirates. They usually are identified with this son of Tyrus. Now let's go to the sons of Ham. We hit the sons of Japheth which settled a lot in the European area. Let's hit the sons of Ham. Now their descendants of Ham were aggressive empire builders. That's pretty important. They were aggressive empire builders. They settled in the Middle East region. Now the first son that's listed in the lineage is a man by the name of Cush. Cush is identified on the upper Nile at Ethiopia. Now remember that the way that the Nile River works is that the upper Nile is south Egypt because the um, uh, Nile River runs from south to north. And so the upper regions in elevation, or elevation, would be in south, so, and south Egypt. So the this identification of Cush is in the upper Nile, which we would know as Ethiopia. Some of the descendants later migrated back to Arabia, Babylonia, and India. The other sons of Cush settled around the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. Now, one of the sons of Cush that is very important is found in the book of Genesis chapter number 10. And let's pick it up in verse number 8. And Cush beget Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Kaunah. Now this is very important. These cities are going to be part of the most important cities in the ancient world. Now Nimrod is the most influential person in history outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'll admit that that's my opinion. However there's a lot of evidence to support this. Now Nimrod became the first picture of of a world empire he was the first shadow of what we would know later as the antichrist he was not a nice guy at all but he enslaved the people for the purpose that he did not want to obey God's clear command so as he determined he was going to build the first world empire In order to do this, he had to rally the people around a cause. Now remember, God had told Noah and his sons to go replenish the earth and scatter. Well, Nimrod says, we don't want God to tell us what to do, so we're going to keep people together and we're going to keep them from scattering apart. So we need, first of all, a common religion. So let's deny God and let's make our own religion. And then we need a common project. So let's build a tower as high as we could build it, and let's join our efforts together, and we're going to show God he can't tell us what to do. A very nice guy. And again, I'm just understating that he was not a nice guy very much the first world empire but it was under his leadership that the Tower of Babel that we find in the book of Genesis chapter number 11 it was under his leadership that the Tower of Babel was built. Now God had given Noah and his sons the command to spread into the earth. And multiply to replenish the earth. Instead, Nimrod rebelled against this command and organized an empire and oversaw the building of the Tower of Babel. His efforts set up the future world empires of Assyria, And the world empire of Babylon. If you look in Genesis chapter 10 again. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. By the way the tower of Babel was located in a future city that we called Babylon. And Erech and Akkad. Akkad is a very important city in the ancient world. Kaunah which is going to be part of the Assyrian empire in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the southern part of Babylon. Which we would know uh, today as Iraq. Which again is very important in history even today. Out of the land went forth Asher. From this city you would have the Assyrian Empire. And built Nineveh. Nineveh later on became the capital of the Assyrian Empire. By the way all of this was from the efforts of Nimrod. And because of it he set the foundation later on that we would see the Assyrian Empire. By the way class the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom in what year? 722 BC the Babylonian Empire conquered the southern kingdom in what year class? 586 BC so again this right here Nimrod's doing is going to come to back to play All throughout Bible history. Again, I cannot underscore how important his influence and world events are even to this day. Now, because of his efforts, he was deified or may be to be considered as a god by the people. So he was so feared, so revered, that they said, he is Nimrod. He is the sun god. He brings light into our world. Later on, he was killed, and his wife, Samaramis <coughs> she said, oh, guess what? Nimrod's dead, but now I am having a Nimrod I'm having his child, it's actually Nimrod, reincarnated. He's going to be risen again. And I'm having it by immaculate conception, meaning I didn't do anything to have this baby. And so the baby was born by the name of Tamaz. And so Samarimus was now worshipped as the mother of God. And thus it carried on throughout the traditions. This began to be the foundations of so many religions from India To Greece influencing Egypt all the way up to the tribal things this was the foundational principle for almost all the false religions I'm getting ahead of myself now out of the worship of Nimrod comes the false gods by the way Zeus was an equivalent to Nimrod Uh, same (laughs) with uh, um, Ra of Egypt all these other false gods. Again, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, I've got a whole separate message just on Nimrod. But out of the worship of Nimrod comes many of the other false gods. Many of our modern day holidays come from Nimrod, as well as many of the traditions. For example, the burning of the Yule log was supposed to be originally the burning of Nimrod when he died. The holiday of Ishtar, later on as Easter, was a celebration of the fertility goddess Ishtar, who was also known as Samarimist. Also, with the idea that Tamaz was risen up again, the child which was Nimrod reincarnated. All of these now pay a part in our modern cultures and histories. And again... Nimrod would be settled in what we would call the Iraq area, the land of Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers of Euphrates and Tigris. Now, after Cush, the next son of Ham mentioned is Mizraim. Now, Mizraim is more important than you probably think. Over 90 times, the word Mizraim is used in the Bible and is translated into the word Egypt. Now Egypt is a Greek word and we use it because we identify with it. But in the Old Testament times in the ancient world when you wanted to go to Egypt you would say we're going to Mizraim. Mizraim was the name of Egypt for many, many years and it was because of its founder, Mizraim. And of course it was settled in this Egypt area. Now another one of Ham's sons was Put. Put is associated with the region of Libya, Libya's on the northern part of Africa in the Mediterranean Sea, which again is in the news even in our modern times. The final son to be mentioned of Ham is Canaan. Before Israel occupied the land, the land was known as Canaan. And of course, we kind of know where Canaan is, the same place where we would have Israel on our maps. The Bible goes on in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, starting at verse 15. And Canaan begets Sidon, and the firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Arkite and the Sinite. Now, these are going to become some of the people all throughout the Bible lands that you'll see over and over again. Verse number 18. And the um, Arvite and the Zemarite and the Hethite, and afterward where the families of the Canaanites spread abroad, and the border of the Canaanites were from Zidon, as thou comest to Giar and Gaza, and as thou goest on to Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adama, and <coughs> uh, Zemum, even to Latia." Now let's go to the sons of Japheth, or to the sons of Shem. We hit the sons of Japheth, which hit the uh, Indonesia, or in the European area. Then we hit the sons of Ham, which hit Africa and the Southwest Asia. Now let's hit the sons of Shem, which, by the way, are very important because this is going to be the lineage of Christ in the families of Shem. Now the descendants of Shem would include the Hebrew people and eventually lead to the person of Abraham. The first of Shem's sons was Elam. They settled in the mountainous district that would later on become the Persian Empire. So once again they settled in what we would call Media later on the Persian Empire. The next listed is Asher. This area became the home Of the Assyrian Empire. So much so that every Assyrian king held that he wore the crown only with the expressed permission of Asher's deified ghost. So, supposedly, this man by the name of Asher still inhabited his ghost, said, All right, you can rule. I'm going to allow you to rule in my stead. Of course, (coughs) we know that's mythology, but that was how important of a historical figure Asher became. Became. Of course, found in this Middle East area, which we would now know as Iraq and Iran. The next son listed is Arfaxad. Now that's a pretty cool name. Aren't you glad that you were not named Arphaxad? How do I spell my name? I don't know. Nobody knows. But Arphaxad is pretty important because through Eber, Arfaxad's son, the line would produce Abraham. And later on, Jesus. So Arphaxad is in the lineage of Christ. He is part of this lineage. Now Eber, who is Arphaxad's son, will have two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Now these are important because notice with me in the book of Genesis chapter 10 and verse 25. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg for in his days were the earth divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Notice the phrase here, for in his days was the earth divided. The Bible took special time out of this lineage to highlight this phrase that in uh, Peleg, his name means division, for in his days was the earth divided. What was divided at this time? Well, Peleg was named from the dividing of the languages at the Tower of Babel. This became such a big event that all the languages were now divided to 70 different language groups. That when Peleg was born they said you know what we're going to call you divided. Because right now we have this great division. We want to mark this occasion. Jochdan later on will develop into 13 Arabian tribes. And of course they're going to settle in what we would now know as Saudi Arabia Arabia. That would be where Joktan and his family would be at. Now, another name from Shem is Lud. Lud's gonna be another descendant of Shem. These became the peoples of Lydia, found in Western Asia Minor. They gained their fame for the skill of their archers even inside of Greek history. These Lydians were known as great archers. They came from Shim's family, the descendant of Lud. And of course they are located there in Asia Minor we now know as Turkey. Now the final Shemite uh, son that we find is Aram. He was the father of the Armenian tribes. In the area of Syria. Once again Syria is still in our news. With the things going on. This is located. In this area. Of Syria. Now the continued lineage of Abraham so it continues all the way up to Abraham and you'll find that in the book of Genesis uh, chapter number 11 and you'll see this lineage goes on this generations of Shem and it's going to go from Shem and go all the way up to Abraham now someone will ask why is the table of nations worth studying that's a valid question Again, the book of Genesis, chapter number 9, 10, maybe 11. You read through here and go, what in the world am I reading? I'm trying to read my Bible through and I just got to chapter 10 and chapter 9. What am I doing? And you say, okay, there are a bunch of names. I'm never going to be able to pronounce them. Let's just go ahead and read through it and go for." Why study this lineage? Why study the table of nations? Well, that's a good question. The Bible talks about in the book of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. Notice the phrase, made of one blood all nations of men. You know what the Bible teaches? That God made man, and man has a common descendant of man and that all nations no matter where you're from whether it's china or whether it's ireland whether it's africa or russia we all come and have one blood that's what the table of nations teaches us is that it was not evolution it was god creating man then he destroyed the world in a great flood had salvaged an entire family and from this family came all the different people groups of the world. That is why it's important because it teaches us that people are the same. Now this is important. Let's go through a little bit more. The Bible teaches that men were created by God and have one blood. There's no difference of blood between someone from China and someone from Ireland. We all have the same blood. It still works. still interconnected. There are no races in the Bible. Only people groups. So you could have Russian people groups, Korean people groups, Portuguese people groups, German people groups. But you don't have different races. We also understand that this teaches that God loves all men the same. Meaning he doesn't have favorites. We'll get into this more in a second. So why is this important? Because we have to understand the foundation of history that we are all the same and God loves everyone. But what about someone who doesn't believe the Bible? What if someone believes evolution? What do the actual textbooks teach kids? What do textbooks teach college people? What do the people who believe in evolution say? Well, one of their most important books that they use would be a book by Charles Darwin called The Origin. Of species, a very important book. Without a doubt you've heard of this book. What does the textbooks have to say concerning the origins of man? Well notice the title to Darwin's book. His book came out in 1859. Now the theory of evolution came long before that but this book attempts to justify racism that had already been practiced. Notice there's a full title of his book. The Origin of Species is the shortened title. Notice this textbook here, it says that the origin of species by the means of natural selection. Well, that's a little bit longer title, but you know that's not the full title of the book. What is the full title of the book? The title of the book is the origin of species by the means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. You know what evolution teaches? That men are not the same. That there are some of you humans that are more evolved than others. And there are some of you that are less evolved than others. Therefore, if you are less evolved, therefore I have the right to treat you differently. Because you are not the same as me. That's what Darwin's book taught and that's what evolution and the textbooks taught now we know that in the last two years especially racism has become a very big deal well it is not the biblical worldview it is the worldview that is taught by evolution and the textbooks notice again here is another copy the origin of species and by the means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races this is the title of the book Now, let's dive into this a little bit more. Now, Darwin thought natives were just advanced animals. This is what he taught. In fact, let's see some quotes from Darwin. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. And thus from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. By the way, this is Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolution, who is saying, by the way, not all of you humans are the same. Some of you are less involved and it is nature's responsibility to wipe you out. Because you are not the same as us higher evolved people. By the way, Darwin's book came out in 1859. In the United States in 1859, we were still selling people as slaves. And Darwin's book on evolution sold like hotcakes because it gave quote-unquote scientific evidence And justification why we should have slaves because they're less evolved than the rest of man. And it helped continue to allow slavery to go on for quite a while because of this teaching of evolution by quote-unquote science. What a horrible time that was to sell people because they were less evolved. Notice, here is another person who is a uh, curator of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. This is what he said. The standard intelligence of the average adult Negro is similar to that of 11-year-old youth from the species Homo sapiens. This is what evolution teaches. Black people, even the full-grown of black people, do not have the same intelligence as a normal white person. We even have a president who just said there's a difference between poor people and white people. That was one of the things he said. Here is uh, uh, Stephen Gould, who is not a creationist, but he's observant over evolution. Notice what he says Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance. Of evolutionary theory. Here again, he's an evolutionist, but he observes hey, racism increased by magnitudes because of the teaching of evolution by giving scientific, quote unquote, scientific proof that racism is science. Thomas Hexley was known as Darwin's bulldog. He was very much a defender of Darwin. He said, No rational man, cognizant of the facts, believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior, of white man. How well do you think these quotes would do well today, in today's society? But you understand, this is what is taught by evolution. This is dangerous teaching. Here is (laughs) a. An Anglican priest who said the black people of Australia, exactly the same race as the African Negro, cannot take in the gospel, meaning they can't get saved. Black people can't get saved. All attempts to bring them to a knowledge of the true God have yet utter are failed utterly. Poor brutes, uh, poor brutes in human shape, they must perish. Off the face of the earth like Bruce Beast. So he's saying black people can't get saved because they're not the same as us. So therefore the best thing to do is to exterminate them all. And just deal with people who can get saved. This is dangerous teaching by the way. Very dangerous. Darwin also thought women were inferior. You thought he was just racist. He's also sexist. He thought... Uh, women were inferior. Darwin said, a married man is a poor slave worse than a negro. Well, I'm married and I don't feel that way, but that's what he thought. He thought that if you were married you were you were bound to someone who was inferior to you. Here's something else that he said. The chief distinction between the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man's attaining to a higher eminence and whatever he takes up, than can a woman. Whether requiring deep thought, reason, imagination, or merely the use of senses uh, and hands, the average mental power in man must be above that of a woman. By the way, this is one of the textbooks that's used, Descent of Man by Darwin, which is used to prove evolution in the book. You could tell the uh, liberal folks haven't read the book. But they say that women have nowhere near the mental capacity that men can. I know a lot of women who can outthink men. Smart, intelligent, inventive, creative. They're just as equal as, <laughs> as man. Probably more so in a lot of places if you wanted to be honest. He goes on in the book, Thus man has ultimately become superior to woman in poetry, strength, and voice, etc. This is the uh, father of evolution, by the way. Who says, man is not created equal, we're all evolved different ways. That the greatest evolved is man, preferably white. Then after that, women, definitely not black people. This again does not fit well today, but where does this stuff come from? It comes from evolution, teaching this idea of evolution. Dr. Henry Morris, who is a creationist by the way, he said it's important to remember that true racism has its roots in the theory of evolution. The Bible does not once recognize the existence of different races or even the very concept of race. The latter is strictly a category of evolutionary biology. By the way, he's correct. Where does the term race come from? Evolution, not the Bible. It is an evolutionary term of categorizing who is more evolved than another. What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering towards us word, not willing that any shall perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that God created all men and all men were created special by God and that we have different people groups that descended from the, God, the man God created. We were not involved. There is no one who is more evolved than another person. And because of that God is not willing for any human being whether they are male or female whether they are Chinese Korean European German American Brazilian he's not willing that any single one of them should perish but all should come to repentance the idea of biblical creationism the idea of what the Bible says is that it doesn't matter what your skin color is it doesn't matter if you're a male or female the truth is, God loves you. And he doesn't want a single person to go to that awful place called hell. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all mankind, no matter who it is. So therefore, if we're going to have a biblical worldview and we're going to have the mind of Christ, therefore we got to have the same heart that God does That we're not willing that any shall perish. But it doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter who they are or where they're from. We need to give them a gospel witness because God loves them. That's what the Bible has to say. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And thank you so much that you love all men, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, and I'm so glad that whosoever includes me. And whosoever includes any person that is alive. That you want them to come to know you as savior. That you're not willing that any should perish but also come to repentance. Lord I'm asking that you would help us to be biblicist. And that we would understand that racism is not something that is lining up with what the Bible says but you would help us to be willing to witness to anyone that we would have a determination whether they're black brown yellow orange green purple that whatever they are Lord that you would help us to be able to witness to each and every one of them because you love them I'm so thankful that we don't have to deal with who's more evolved than others we don't have to get in that fight All we have to do is say that God loves everyone and practice that with our lives. Lord, I'm just asking that you would use us to strengthen and encourage our church that we would be willing to witness to anyone and everyone. Maybe you have someone in mind. Maybe they're a little bit different. Maybe they're a little bit strange. Maybe they're a different culture, different background, different belief. But you know that they're not... They're not saved. They've never accepted God's love and forgiveness that he offered them. Maybe you have an individual in mind. What I would like you to do tonight is take God's promise that he's not willing that any shall perish but all should come to repentance. And you would lay that person down at the foot of the cross that you would bring their name up to God in the throne room of grace and say, Lord, please do what it takes to let and name that person come to know Christ as their savior. Uh, Beg God to save their soul and then look for opportunities for you to be used as a vessel to see God answer that prayer.